0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the manhunt for the two BC teens suspected in three murders has ended with the discovery of two bodies. A new campaign for the Canadian Health Food Association wants to see Canadians have more access to CBD oil. Also, there is a tech fix for our health care system. Let's talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The story that everybody's talking about uh, the manhunt for the two B.C. teens suspected in three murders has ended with the discovery of two bodies police believe to be the uh, the two alleged uh, perpetrators of at least three murders. Uh, I... I I'm, I'm befuddled by this, as I think so many other people are, it, 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 from what little we do know about what has happened over the last little while. So we're going to uh, go at this from a couple of different angles. Uh, first of all, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, and of uh, course, former Toronto police officer. Uh, Ross, thank you for a very busy day for uh, you hopping in for, this, uh, for just a couple of minutes. Good you could join us today.
1: Hey, Good morning, Bill.
0: This uh, In all your years of, of law enforcement and policing, have you ever heard of a story like this?
1: Uh, yes. Yes. In, in, in the, in the terms of this, I want to, I want to frame it in this terms. Yeah. You've got these, uh, two young men, uh, certainly it, it appears the one, the younger, the Briar Schmelsky, however you say his name correctly, I apologize for getting it wrong, uh, who grew up with a very disturbed life, a very disturbed life, emotional disturbance, family disturbances. We're hearing stories of, uh, you know, being given uh, drugs since he was a young kid, Ritalin and stories of him abusing the drug by crushing it and snorting it, Uh, you know, playing violent video games involved with Nazis and the whole thing. We're starting to see a bit of a trend here uh, with young men of this generation who have grown up uh, surrounded with broken families and uh, doomsdays since they were born almost. They were born uh, you know, to the uh, year 2000, the world's going to end, all the computers are going to stop. And then it went on from there to all the other things. The uh, The economy collapsed Then they couldn't get a job. And they have, there's, there's a lot of non-hope for a lot of these people. So when you see people get desperate, Bill, you see them do uh, hopeless,
0: desperate things. And, and again, we, at this point, Ross, have more questions than we have answers at this stage, which only makes this thing even more frustrating.
1: Yeah, you know the police. I think have to do a good uh, review of how they've handled this whole thing from start to finish. Now I'm saying that also, as you say, not knowing a lot, knowing not knowing a lot of what they were doing and what went well. But on the on the surface, uh, it appears a lot didn't get handled well. So they'll have to figure that out. Now I say that with this one caveat. I remember going to a call one time uh, as a as a journalist, if you will, covering it for a toddler who went out of a building. at at 4 in the morning when it was minus 35 with high winds. And I went to the site, you know, 8 hours later, they still hadn't found the child. And I, I could barely get out of my car, it was so cold. And I'm wondering, how could they have not found this child by now? But the child had wandered off just an inordinate distance. I could not believe it when they found the body. And I thought, okay, well, this is the reason why. So there was something more to it than what it appeared to be. So I think the police are going to need to explain this, whether they will or
0: not, I don't know. Well, geography is part of this, isn't it? I mean, that's part of the the, the quizzical thing about this whole thing. I mean, uh, these these murders uh, occurred over on the west coast, obviously, and all of a sudden we're in Manitoba. I mean, that's uh, that's quite a distance, obviously, and you just had to wonder was uh, you know if these two actually had a, a game plan of any description.
1: Typically with criminals, when, when they do stuff like this, they do have a game plan, but the script only goes so far. And what happens is when you run out of script, all of a sudden you're not really sure what to do, panic sets in, uh, and these sort of problems. They don't really have a game plan to go further. So it, it, it certainly appears to me at this point, at least looking at it anecdotally, they when they went off, they lived out their, their little fantasy video game. They played a survivor video game uh, called Rust, where you go around killing innocent people to take their take their things it's really a gruesome ridiculous game and you set things on fire and you go trekking off to go do stuff so it looks like they somewhat live that out and then when they got to manitoba realizing that the police were slowly starting to close in on them uh it seems they burned the one thing they had which was a vehicle Mm -hmm. you know his vehicle why would you do that if you didn't have another one to go to and then they're found a short distance, just 8 kilometers from that, which is another interesting point, but how well the search went out from where, where the vehicle was found. They're both found dead, just uh, 8 kilometers uh, from there. And I'll just point out, in a, the game that they were playing, Bill, and we'll see if this plays a part or not, the character that you identify with, if it's in a really bad spot, you have the choice of committing suicide as the character and becoming reborn somewhere else. So this is the game that the one younger apparently played for over 500 hours, according to some reporting. So how did they both die? Together at the same time in the woods? We'll wait for those details, I guess, from the RCMP.
0: Yeah, the autopsies are being done today, obviously, so we should get some more details and some answers, maybe, about that aspect of it. Uh, talk to me a little bit, Ross, again about the search itself and the coordination, or some suggest the lack of coordination uh, that was going on with RCMP, uh, obviously, which crossed a, across a number of provinces. Uh, there were sightings or alleged sightings in, in different places all over the place. As a matter of fact, even as, as far away as Ontario, uh, which obviously, I guess, we're you know just false uh, accusations about what was going on like this. But but talk to us about the coordination and how they did this and how you you basically try to throw the net out there to try to find these people.
1: Yeah, well, one of the things that police have always been doing, and it's always been a bit of an issue, is when you have to deal outside of your own, uh, your own realm, if you will. That's why a lot of the times we certainly see in urban areas where police departments actually practice and do things with neighboring police departments, they will run exercises together so they can both help each other out. Or if something happens on the border, and when they do that, they look at how fast their messaging is back and forth. They find they find holes in how they how they deal together or not, and then they try to fix those. In this case, it seems like with if the RCMP was in charge of this case, they had to somehow coordinate with all the different provinces and municipalities and other forces. To get consistent communication out to the leadership uh, to do the right work. I mean, you know, we had this shooting down in Dayton, Ohio, and if you were to listen to the police scanner of that, I was listening to the police scanner as it went on, and you heard the command post saying, okay, who do we have here from Homeland Security? Where's where the FBI? Could the ATF guy please come here? So they're putting it together kind of on the spot, trying to put all these forces together. So maybe that's an issue that needs to be looked at for how we communicate
0: uh, across these boundaries. With that knowledge, and I guess this is some accumulated knowledge over the last couple of days of this uh, this manhunt, the dragnet that was going out around the country, uh, do you do you try to make a determination as to where they're going? Do you look in cities? Obviously, these, as you mentioned, because of this video game that they seem to be basing all this this bizarre behavior on, uh, it, it had not much more to do with, as you say, uh, you know, being out in the wilderness and that sort of thing. Does, is that a clue? Is that how you uh, try to channel the investigation?
1: Well, part of, and when you have good police intelligence, and I'm not going to go into this, but that's where carding helps out, if you will, it's the terrible name for carding, but if we, when you have good intelligence on people, the first thing the police start looking into is information about their background. Uh, did this kid ever go camping and live in that area for a period of time? Either one of them or work there. Did they have communications with anybody? So what you do is you look for things in their background that indicate who they're associated with. Normally when people are on the run, They run someplace they've got some familiarity with that they can go and hide. They just don't go jumping blindly into the abyss. So that's one of the things the police do, and that helps to determine uh, if they find good information there, where to start looking. That's why in Toronto and in Hamilton and places like that, when you see a shooting go down and they've got an idea who the suspect may be, uh, they'll start be banging on the doors of all the associates of that person very quickly to try and find them. That's so. That would be how the police were looking at that.
0: With what we know so far, I, I guess we're asking here for an educated guess uh, that the, the murders uh, that they are alleged to have committed—random acts of violence.
1: Well, you know, this is the, the actual act of doing violence to an being is entirely different even though it feels the same when you're doing on a video game but everything changes when you do it now with a firearm that makes it easier to do it right uh when these things happen i don't i don't we'll have to find out the police have not discussed how the bodies were killed uh when they were found Mm -hmm. the couple that was there or the other man was it done execution style like in the game was there overkill? Did it look like there was a fight? I mean, that, that they could probably tell a lot of that from the conditions. We don't know that yet. I don't suspect anybody kills three people just uh, on a whim. So there is some there is some thought towards proceeding with it to some degree.
0: Because from what we know, and again, as you say, there's a great deal of investigation still to be done on this situation, but it seemed at first blush as if that, all three victims just happened to probably be in the wrong place at the wrong time.
1: Well yeah I mean, if you and you know for this they uh, say if people look at you can look at this game Rust on youtube, you go go look up YouTube Rust, you can find a bunch of people who play it and what they do with it, and it's really devoid of any humanity or emotion, you know you come up behind people and you say, "Hi, can you help me? I need some water while you're holding a big rock in your hand, and when the person turns around, you beat them to death and you take their stuff and you laugh about it. It's a really devoid of any sort of humanity this game uh so when you have and let's let's get to this point bill everybody's saying oh don't blame video games don't blame them you don't blame video games per se but what will happen and i've speak spoken to some top psychologists about this a hundred people can play a video game and have no trouble with it a violent one but you get the one person who's off and lost and emotionally disturbed it can really cause problems for that one person So if uh, we heard stories that this kid was uh, seen torturing little puppies and cats, like we always hear about, that leads to serial killing, if you will, we'd be very concerned. Well, what about if he had a video game where you torture little cats and kittens? Is that the same thing? Or where you smash humans to death? Is that the same thing that we should be concerned about? I think there's something there that needs to be investigated
0: when that investigation continues and I, I assume it's ongoing right now uh... i, I got to assume ross at some point they're, they're going to discover that there were red flags up there somebody had to know something about these two people and uh... and i don't know what they did about it i don't know if they had any concerns about this but i mean they just didn't come drop out of the sky this is this has been going on as as you say from the video game aspect of this, this has not going on for quite some time
1: no there's a trend going on here and that yeah. trend is emerging right now with all of these different shootings the same ones that just happened in the states the same sort of twisted characters who come from twisted backgrounds. People were aware of it, the Parkland shooter, all of these ones. There's lots of red flags, but we're not dealing with it well as a society. We see in schools uh, that they won't suspend kids anymore for real violence because they don't want to be in trouble for suspending kids. It looks bad on you as a board if you suspend too many people and there's problems. So you allow the violent kids to stay in school and you cover it up and you don't really deal with the issues of, uh, of kids with red flags. And how do you deal with it? Uh, do we have the right resources for it? Well, I'd say we don't. There's not easily counselling available uh, to catch these kids at the earlier stages. And that's when you want to try to help somebody, right? They'll not When they're about to jump off a boat and, and go kill themselves, as opposed to when they're in the water, they're fighting. You, you want to pick your places. So I think overall there needs to be a better look at how we help deal with uh, the breakdown of family and kids with uh, no hope uh, who are used to violence and uh, just time to end life. There's
0: no fun to this life anymore. As we say, so many questions, uh, and hopefully we'll get some of these answers. Uh, Crime Specialist Ross McLean. Ross, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. We'll talk again soon. It's a hectic day, obviously, especially in Manitoba, as the story continues to unfold. Diana Foxall from Global News is uh, with us uh, from Manitoba. Diana, thank you for the time. Appreciate you joining us today. No problem. Good morning, Bill. What's the latest? What are you hearing today? How is, as, as this story starts and continues to unfold right now, uh, what kind of an impact is this having on the community there?
2: Uh, the overwhelming feeling from the community, especially up in northern Manitoba, is just one of relief. So RCMP said yesterday that this manhunt is over. They found two bodies believed to be those of the suspects, Brian Shmigelski and Cam McLeod, uh, near Gillum. And um, while they haven't yet officially confirmed that those are the identities of the two bodies, uh, they say they are very, very confident that they, it is the suspects. Um, so now that manhunt is over, and people in Gillum are really just breathing a sigh of relief. This is a small, tight-knit community where people don't lock their doors at night. So to have a massive, massive police presence in town for upwards of two weeks and potentially to have two dangerous suspects on the run who have allegedly killed three people over in northern B.C., and you don't know where they are, perhaps they're in your backyard, perhaps they're in the bush, you don't know where they are. Uh, it just had a lot of people on edge, so for that fear to kind of be dissipating now and for people to have some closure is um, just a very big relief to lots of people up in northern Manitoba and certainly across Canada too, this this story is captured not just our attention here, but uh, nationally and internationally.
0: Well, sure, because there, there were talk of, of alleged sightings even as far away as Ontario over the last couple of days, which obviously police have to follow up on. But uh, is, is there any indication at all, Diana, why this ended up in Gillum, Manitoba, uh, from from British Columbia? Is, is there a tie-in there anywhere?
2: We really don't know. There's a lot of questions uh, now that these suspects have supposedly been found dead, and questions that we may well not get answers to. Um, certainly we know they were on the run after they allegedly killed three people in northern bc uh but to be honest gillam manitoba is not necessarily the place you'd want to run to um certainly is lots of wilderness here so if their plan was kind of to commit a string of crimes and then go off and hide in the bush uh they accomplished that however they sounds like they are dead now um but this is certainly not the first place i think many people would think of if they were on the run from police.
0: This is a a multi-pronged investigation, obviously, that stretches, as we mentioned, from British Columbia all the way over now to to Gillam, Manitoba. Uh, Have you had a chance to talk to the authorities about how they continue this investigation? Uh, uh, Because as you mentioned, Diana, there's an awful lot of questions here. How did they get there? Why did they go there? Uh, Did they have a plan? Was there some goal in sight here? Uh, Or was this all just part of the major scheme itself? As I say, there's some speculation now as to how they may have ended their lives. Uh, and if it's according to that video game, it could have been suicide, it could have been, well, we don't know at this stage, and I guess it's it's not fair to speculate, but authorities uh, I, I, at this point have got to make some decisions about exactly how they're going to continue with this investigation.
2: Absolutely. So there's kind of two parts, as you mentioned. So here in Manitoba, a lot of the focus had been on the manhunt, and now that we do have two bodies that uh, police have brought back to Winnipeg, they, took, they flew them back from Gillum last night, and they're going to be conducting the autopsies over the next couple of days. What that'll look like here is We will hopefully get a confirmation on their identities sooner rather than later. Uh, We will get a cause of death. Um, I think many people are also hoping that perhaps the autopsy can provide some sort of timeline as to how long they had been dead for, because we know the last confirmed sighting in Gillum was July 22nd. The bodies were found yesterday, August the 7th, so that's more than two weeks uh, where we don't know what happened to them. So... That's largely the question here. Uh, Other questions like motive, um, RCMP and BC certainly looking into that if they can find evidence that would lead them to something of that nature. But at this point, they say that's one of the many questions that they may well never get an answer to. Of course, in this kind of case, police would have loved to have had the suspects alive, brought them into the interview room, and just found out what happened, but... um, as it sounds like they are now dead, police saying they believe those bodies are those of the suspects, Um, that's one of the questions we may well not get an answer to.
0: Diana, we look forward to your reporting on this over the next uh, little while as you get more information. Thanks so much for this. Really appreciate you jumping on.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you.
0: Diana Foxall from Global News, of course, in uh, Gillam, Manitoba.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: There's an interesting new campaign that's starting up right now, just in time, by the way, for the, uh, the federal election here in Canada. Uh, and it's by the uh, Canadian Health Food Association. They want to see uh, CBD as a, a natural health product. Now, obviously, we know about a number of the restrictions that governments have put in after the legalization, of course, of cannabis and uh, cannabis-related projects and products. And uh, they seem to be moving at glacial speed, I guess, to to try to move along with this. Joining us to talk about this whole idea and the campaign itself is uh, Dan Demers, who's the Vice President Government Relations and Regulatory Affairs for the Canadian Health Food Association. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Oh, thanks for having me on, I appreciate it. Listen, for, for the work that you guys do, uh, you've got to be frustrated too by the, the slow pace the government is doing. I mean, legalization was wonderful for so many people for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, and and I know that there was a, a lot of focus about the recreational aspect of this whole thing, Dan, but uh, we need to spend a lot more time talking about the health benefits.
3: Absolutely. I mean, in, in some ways you can say that the government's focus has made it easier to get high, but it's made it harder to get well. And I think when we looked at legalization, the government was faced with sort of three choices. One is the medicinal side, one is the recreational side, and in the middle is the wellness side. And I think what we find frustrating is that the government has looked at it and said, we're going to take two main components of cannabis, THC, which makes you high, and CBD, that makes you well, and we're going to treat them the same. And what we're saying is that CBD is a natural health product. It's non-psychoactive. It's non-addictive. The World Health Organization has said it's safe. Even Health Canada on their website say it's safe. So why is it that Canadians who want access to CBD for their health have to buy it online? They have to buy products that are non-regulated. We don't know where they're sourced. They run a risk when instead Canada has a world-class natural health products industry. We're highly regulated. And if we put forward a product, we have to back up any any health claim we make. We have to back it up with evidence. So what we're saying is that why don't you treat CBD as what it is? It's a natural health product. Let Canadians have access to it through products that are Canadian-made, they're regulated, we know what's in them. And then there's the other side, which is that this is a multi-billion-dollar industry. It's worth almost a billion dollars in Canada, or will be very soon. It's going to be worth $20 globally. Why don't we let Canadian industry do what we do best? Let's create innovative products, let's make sure we work with our customers, let's make sure we get it through community-based retail so people can access it. But, you know, this is something that will create jobs across Canada whether it's the hemp industry growing the raw material in Western Canada, and they've said they'll grow maybe up to 4,000 jobs, or it's manufacturers and retailers in our sector where we're going, give us the chance to do what we do. Let's take a natural health product, let's make it available to Canadians, and let's create some jobs while we're doing it.
0: Is there a stigma t- about this whole thing? Because, I mean, like you say, there, there seems to be a great reticence on behalf of especially government officials uh, to move forward on this. Is, is it because of that stigma, or is it maybe they just they, they don't really have the information that's necessary to make a decision?
3: Well, I think there's a little bit of stigma in that they're nervous that if they move too quickly, the stigma that Canadians have about cannabis in general, they're going to go, listen, how do we, you know, are we running a risk on that? But I think they're wrong. I think Canadians have shown the fact that they're buying millions of dollars of the CBD products. They clearly want it. They're doing their own research and understanding it has health benefits, and they want to be able to buy it from good, safe, and, and primarily Canadian sources. So I think the stigma argument that the government has is wrong. As far as caution, I guess I look at it and say, well, surely we can figure out two components of the same plant and treat them differently. Um, you know, if you can, if you can regulate poppies so that you can make opiates from it, but I can sell a poppy seeds on my bagels, I think we can figure out how to deal with two components of a cannabis plant, one that's healthy and one that's recreational. And let's do it separately. The Canadians get what they need to be healthier. And Canadian industry has a chance to compete in this global economy.
0: Well, and let's talk about need here. Um, And, and, you know, I I think it's important for us to connect dots here when we're having this discussion, Dan. Uh, We've mentioned this a couple of times about addiction. And and, and first of all, CBD is not addictive. Mm -hmm. But painkillers are. Uh, and we know about the opioid crisis. We know that here in the Hamilton mm-hmm. area, for instance, we have a higher average than than any other community in this province. It's it's frightening. It's it's a it is a tragedy. It's a crisis situation here. Uh, and and to, to my way of thinking, uh, when you talk about CBD, that's a, that's a solution staring you right in the face.
3: Well, exactly. And and I agree with you. It is an absolute tragedy. and It's something that we have to look at all the resources we have to bring to this issue. And, you know, we still need to do more research about uh, the impact of CBD. That's something that we support because, again, if we're going to make a claim, we we have to provide the scientific evidence to back it up. But I think what we want is we want the government to say, yeah, start that process. Start looking at how can CBD be used. Get the science, get the evidence, create some products, get them into the approval channel. So, I think there's something, we, we are part of that solution. I think we're, we're also something that would help people out with things like anxiety. Um, so there is a great deal of, of growing evidence about the impact of CBD, for example, on, on addressing opiates. Why don't we go down that path? Why don't, why don't we get the government to move? So what we've launched, we've launched a campaign called CBD is Natural, and we're asking Canadians to go to our website, cbdisnatural.ca, and contact the candidates in the next federal election and tell them that you want CBD to be part of a solution, whether it's for the opioid crisis or, or it's just simply Canadians want to have access to products for their own wellness. But we have to use the election to tell the politicians that you've got it wrong. This is something that should be available as a natural health product, and that's what Canadians want.
0: A couple of weeks ago, I uh, had a discussion with uh, Zach Ronaldo, who was an NHL hockey player and uh, from Hamilton, as it turned out. Uh, and, and he told us his story, Dan, which I thought was quite remarkable and, and, and I think very ed- ed- educational. Uh, he's, of course, been playing pro hockey for a long time. And anybody who's a pro athlete knows you get banged around a lot. And there's, you know, surgeries and knee injuries, et cetera, et cetera. Long story short, uh, because of some of that stuff that he suffered, he was on painkillers. And he said it was killing him. He couldn't sleep at night. He actually put on weight because his health was terrible. And a friend of his put him onto hemp oil. And uh, and he's quite honest about this and saying, look, I started using this stuff, lost the weight, pain medication has been gone, he threw that stuff away, and the pain management's now being done by the hemp oil. Uh, and 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 that's a testimonial, but that's only one story of I don't know how many we could actually tell of people that are actually using this as a medicinal uh, solution to, to uh, chronic pain, which is obviously one of the big problems we seem to have in this society.
3: I agree. I and mean, it's why we look always look at natural remedies to go, this is part of the health and wellness continuum. If we can help make people healthier with less intervention, that's better for everybody. It's better for them, it's better for the health, better for the healthcare system. And and I think C B D is this one more example where it's get this into the hands of Canadians so that they can, you know, make an informed decision about what they want to do for their own wellness and that will improve their life there's a lot of anecdotal evidence about the impact of cbd and and we we certainly see the benefits that are there but again we have to provide the evidence that supports any health claims so we're saying give us that chance if if this is something that will help you you know help a pro athlete many pro athletes who use cbd for 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 um, health and wellness if that's what it's going to be then let us have a shot at that and we will do the research we will provide the evidence and we'll produce the products, and Canadians will be able to go to a health food store and buy our products, so they know it has great quality, and it clearly, you know, it, it clearly states what's going to do for their wellness. So it's part of that continuum. Again, if we can get Canadians to contact uh, candidates next federal election and say, "Listen, this is something we want to have access to. It's it's not something that should be restricted. I, my mom shouldn't have to go to a cannabis store to buy health products." Uh, that doesn't make sense so again we're asking people go to CBD uh, is natural and and tell the tell the candidates for the next federal election you want to be you want to have access to uh, those products that you can use yourself to improve your own health and wellness
0: well, and again, you know, we're using the example of professional athletes like, like Zach Ronaldo that we were just referencing, but I mean, this could be some you know, somebody that plays beer league hockey, or you know, maybe it's you know your, your shoulder's bad because of the golf swing and you can't swing. Uh, it's pain management, and and but I tell you, when we start talking about skyrocketing health costs, and that's by the way one of the things that will be one of the topics during this upcoming election, uh, one of that is, is the cost of prescription drugs, and if you can use an alternative to prescription drugs and to painkillers, especially, uh, you're reducing health care costs and at the same time you're probably it's a healthier solution to what you're doing because you're running the risk of addiction with the other ones uh, just about all that stuff that you're putting into your body right now eventually does terrible things to your liver if you're on it for any long period of time and I know anecdotally the information I've seen says that's not the case when you start using CBD as an alternative
3: well exactly and you hit the you know, you hit the nail right on the head which is the more people can improve their own health and wellness the less of a of strain they are on the system. And that's why we look at our industry and going, we help people live better, live healthier, live, live, live more well. That is not only a, a substantial improvement in their quality of life, it actually has, saves a lot of money on the healthcare system because we're having less people going in with chronic pain and, and, and chronic issues they have to manage. So, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, people should have access to CBD. And, and I think the other thing is that they shouldn't have to go to a cannabis store to get it. This is not a recreational drug. This is a health product. And peak Canadians should be able to go to a health food store or another retailer that sells health products and say, listen, I want CBD to improve my health so I can overall feel better, but also so that I'm less dependent on the health care system. It, d- it just doesn't make sense to force people to go down a recreational cannabis plant path for something that is, in fact, uh, a wellness product.
0: Dan, where's the medical community on this? Are they part of this discussion? Well, the medical community, I think,
3: to be fair to them, they, they continue to come back and say, listen, we want to see more evidence before we have our patients go down this path. But we've seen a lot of doctors already come out and say, based on the evidence they're seeing, that this is not something should wait. This is something that we should fast-track and get into the hands of Canadians. So they're not coming out and endorsing it because, to be fair to them, a lot of the scientific evidence hasn't been gathered. And again, what we're asking the government to do is give us the signal that we'll be able to participate in this industry, We'll get that evidence. We'll we'll make sure that Canadians are making informed decisions, and then the medical community it will be more comfortable in saying this is part of that health and wellness continuum that we're all looking for.
0: Uh, the reason I was asking you, because they are pretty slow to the dance an awful lot of the time. I mean, even twenty twenty five years ago, when the idea of holistic medicines and uh, and herbal remedies uh, were starting to, to make waves, uh, they, they were a little reticent to, to embrace that, too. I, I think they do now, obviously, because of the research that's been done and, and the case studies that have been done on this, too. So I'd like to think that eventually they're going to be on side with this.
3: I would like to, too. I mean, I think the medical community is looking more at the whole patient all the time. And this is making sure a patient is well, not just repairing what's wrong with them, but let's make sure they're well. I think it's more and more the medical practice. So, you know, we look forward to to working with them. But again, I mean, to be fair to them, they want more evidence. Great. Well, what we're saying to government is, is give us the opportunity. We'll get the evidence. We'll create the products. Let's do what we do best which is innovate, bring products, and get them to Canadians. And, and that's, again, we don't understand why the government's putting that down the cannabis path, uh, recreational side. This is what we do best. We create products that help Canadians improve the quality of their life and their health and their wellness. Why can't we participate in this sector? It just doesn't make sense.
0: Dan, you're in early days with this, uh, this campaign right now to try to bring some awareness to this. Are you getting any response at all from the political parties and political leaders?
3: Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, I, I think to, you know, to, to, be fair to them, they're looking at this and kind of going to an issue we don't really understand. So we've done a lot to educate them and every politician we've talked to says, yeah, this makes sense. Let's get it. Let's make sure patients are informed. Let's make sure they have the products to access. And it doesn't make sense to put this down a, um, a recreational cannabis route. That being said, they're facing a lot of issues. The more we can get Canadians to go to cbdisnatural.ca and say to them, listen, this is important to me. My health is important. My ability to get products to improve my health are important. I want you to make a commitment that you're going to change what, quite frankly, is nonsensical regulation."
0: And uh, the webpage, once again, for people that want to jump on board here?
3: It's cbdisnatural.ca.
0: Uh, Dan, good luck with this. I, I'd like to think this is going to be part of the discussion uh, as uh, we head towards the election this October. Uh, it, it makes all kinds of sense for a number of different reasons that we've discussed here to at least explore this and and and, and, and make it more accessible, I, I think, for people that really do need this for pain management. So uh, we'll stay in touch, I'm sure, over the weeks and months ahead to see just how this is going to uh, bounce off on a few of the folks that are running for public office. Thanks so much for this today.
3: Well, thank you for the time and, and helping us get the message out there. Really appreciate it.
0: Okay, take care, Dan Demers. Of course, right. uh, government thank relations you. and regulatory affairs for the Canadian Health Food Association. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. According to a poll commissioned by the uh, Canadian Medical Association, Canadians believe that the healthcare system needs a tech fix, but they do worry about the route to privatization and and well, the efficacy of actually doing more online medical care and consultation. Joining us to talk about what may be heading down the road is uh, Dr. Gina Osler, who is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today.
4: Thanks for having me on.
0: Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about where we are and 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 the usages, I, I guess, of, of technology and uh, of the internet right now. I mean, we we do internet banking, we do internet buying, mm-hmm. we do all sorts of other stuff. Is it's inevitable that uh, medicine and, and healthcare, I guess, was, is going to have to be integrated into that as well, is it not?
4: Hey, you're absolutely right, and the report is telling us that. Canadians are ready and eager for healthcare to catch up to the online world, uh, but Canada's healthcare system needs an upgrade. And you just said, we're accustomed to using technology in our day-to-day lives. I mean, you can take a picture of a check and send it to your bank and have it deposited. But in healthcare, we're decades behind. We still have hospitals that rely on fax machines and pagers. So it's clear that it's time for our health care system to modernize and to upgrade.
0: Well, maybe the best example of this, Doctor, because I I remember the discussion and the debate about this here in the province of Ontario some time ago, and it had to do with e-health, which is basically just Mm -hmm. modernization of records, so doctors don't have those boxes and boxes and boxes of, of, of records in their offices. Uh, and and because of of some of the political concerns, uh, all of a sudden there seemed to be a mindset that oh we don't really need to do that that's a, that's an extra added cost for government. It's absolutely positively essential to to, to move into the twenty first century. And I was surprised at that at the kind of pushback to something like that.
4: You're absolutely right. The technology is there; it is in use in healthcare, um, but here and there it's used in silos, so not used in on, in any consistent large scale across the country. And many of these um, technology systems, like health records, don't talk to each other. So I say it's like a healthcare puzzle where you've got pieces scattered here and there. And we need to start connecting the puzzle pieces to make healthcare more seamless and integrated. And for example, some of the puzzle pieces may be a patient portal where. Patients can access their test results online. Or in other cases, we might need to use technology uh, like virtual healthcare visits to improve the connections and improve healthcare delivery to Canadians across the country.
0: How would the, your, your fellow members of the association how are they feeling about something like this? Uh, because I know just uh, just talking to some of the folks around the, the building here, the radio station about this earlier today, doctor, and and uh, the consensus I got from an awful lot of people is yeah, but I kind of like the personal touch, uh, which, which I guess is the same thing as saying every time I go into a bank, I want to talk to a teller and not to an ATM, I, I suppose, but probably even more so with healthcare because it's it's kind of personal.
4: You're absolutely right, and Canadians have expressed concerns. That more technology could lead to less human interactions and less compassion in healthcare. And I say, let's use technology to take care of some of the mundane administrative tasks so that healthcare providers and doctors have more time with patients. And then we can enhance that human connection and enhance the compassion in healthcare
0: how would you assuage those concerns and how would you uh, get people to on side to say okay that's not so bad after all I guess we can do that
4: hmm well you know for example online um, appointment bookings is one easy example that you know we're tracking packages with Amazon online but we can't track doctors appointments online if we can take some of those tasks it makes it easier for patients to monitor your health appointments Makes it easier for staff. It'll give your doctor's office staff more time to um, answer concerns from patients. It frees up the doctors from having to look at schedules and arrange uh, this appointment and that appointment. And it makes, I think, that whole healthcare experience more seamless. So, anyway, I think we can be more efficient in times that patients spend waiting in doctor's offices and more efficient doctors' use of time, it means we as doctors can spend more time one-on-one with patients.
0: Well, I mean, I see that with my own uh, GP I, when I go and, and we visit uh, on a pretty regular basis. I mean, uh, it looked mm-hmm. to me as if his number one tool is his laptop. I mean, it's always there and he's got, you know, every, everything is just a fingertip away, uh, whether it's information, whether it's, uh, you know, my personal information, or it's stuff that we want to look up. I mean, let's face it, uh, for those that, that are a little antsy about this and say, well, I don't really want to get involved in that, we Google everything now anyway, don't we, Doctor? I mean, you get to find, hey, I got this sore arm, I want to find out what that is. So we go online. Well, why? why not incorporate that into the medical uh, avenues as well?
4: We do. And so I know for doctors, many of the resources um, that we used to use as actual textbooks, paper books, we can now access online on our computer or our phone. Look at how many Canadians are already using technology to track their own health. People are using Fitbits, health apps on their phone, and iWatches. Patients are gathering all of this information about their own health. They want to be able to use it in their healthcare care management. But that's where we're lacking some of the technology and some of the connections to be able to take that information people are gathering on their own, put it in to your medical record at your doctor's office or your medical record at the hospital. And so we're trying to identify all these gaps to see what can we do better, can we use technology to make healthcare more efficient.
0: Well, as you're talking to me, like I'm just looking at my watch here, it's telling me how many steps I've taken today. It's telling me what my heart rate mm-hmm. is. I mean, that's, that's medical information uh, that, as you say, we could share uh, with, our, with our physicians uh, and, and be concerned about exactly what they can do with that sort of information. The other side of that, though, doctor, and I know this is something that the association has talked about, is, is the concern, and I think it's a legitimate concern, again, with all the stories we've heard about hacking and things of this nature, mm-hmm. is confidentiality. How, how do you try to bridge that problem?
4: It's really interesting. I, I find that the more time we spend on our computers or our phone online, we seem to get more and more accustomed to sharing our personal information online. You know, look at Facebook, for example. But as doctors, protecting our patients' health information is a priority. So as technology gets more integrated into healthcare, We are advocating that we need to ensure that there are policies and regulations in place right from the get-go to safeguard privacy. It has to be a concern for all of us as these systems are being designed, as they're being put into place, and it can't be an afterthought.
0: So where do we go here? I mean, clearly, the, you know, the Canadian Medical Association uh, wants to move forward on this. This poll that, uh, that uh, you've uh, talked about here, Doctor, indicates that uh, the majority of Canadians, although they have some reservations about some of the, the smaller points, such as we just talked about, about confidentiality, that they want to mm-hmm. move forward on something like this. How do, how do we move the, the yardsticks ahead now and try to get this thing out, uh, incorporated and get it off the ground?
4: You're absolutely right. I see Canadians ready and eager. I see doctors and healthcare providers ready and eager. And so, as an association, we are making this a priority. For example, next week in Toronto, we're having a health summit where over a thousand doctors, patients, and healthcare stakeholders will be coming together to have that national conversation on the future of healthcare in Canada. How can we use that full potential of technology to connect patients with doctors, to connect data, innovation, and technology, and really, it's time where we need everybody, from everyday folks to healthcare providers to all levels of government, to help our strained medical system overcome many of these hurdles. You know, from funding to regulation to policies. It's time to move forward and it's time for action.
0: Well, you mentioned funding, and that's always a, a huge stumbling block, of course, when the government comes to the table uh, and says, you know, the cupboard is bare, we just don't have as much money as we'd like to have, and we're going to have to make some sort of a, a, an allocation. And I know it's it's struggling. I mean, uh, here in Ontario, I think it's, what, 47 cents out of every tax dollar spent on health care. Uh, and that number fluctuates. I mean, it was as high as 51, I think, a couple of years ago. So the, the, the dollar cost here is something that has to be factored in here. Uh, is there a business case to be made for this, Doctor, that suggests that if we move more in towards online and, and virtual uh, health care, that it's actually going to be a cost-saving to the system?
4: And that's a conversation we're starting to have. And I think we need to look at cost savings both from a patient's perspective and the healthcare system perspective. I'll give you an example. If your doctor can do a healthcare visit with you for, for a routine checkup, but you live two hours away. You've got to make the appointment, drive into the city where the doctor's office is, park. That's time away from work if you're working. You've got to pay for parking, you've got to pay for gas. What if we could have done that visit virtually over the internet? Now Granted, not every doctor's visit can be like that, but can we start to innovate and look at the instances where we can use technology, like for a virtual healthcare visit, to replace in person visits? I think there's going to be cost savings and convenience for patients and potentially cost savings for the system as well.
0: And and there would have to be some determination made. I guess that's more of a policy decision, I guess, for doctor, uh, as to what would constitute an online visit as opposed to a a face-to-face visit, I guess, depending on, uh, well, what uh, what the the concern is, I guess the health concern is with the individual.
4: Exactly. And so it has to be tailored to the individual person, and it depends on the nature of the problem that's being followed up on. Um, We also talk about how this can improve access, So, in a province like Ontario that's quite large, can we start to have more virtual visits with people who live up in northern or remote communities? So, they won't have to be flown down uh, to Toronto or to Hamilton for their visit. So, it is certainly something that's important to discuss because as the world around us keeps evolving and adopting modern technology, we don't see healthcare system our healthcare system keeping up the same pace, and we can't afford to fall further behind.
0: Doctor, is this a possible solution to the ongoing uh, shortage of doctors that we have? Uh, uh, world, uh, well, it's it's national, really. It's not just an Ontario problem, certainly, uh, especially small town uh, that, that may not have doctors. I mean, as, as doctors get older and retire, oftentimes it's very difficult to find somebody to take their place. And, and as you mentioned, mm-hmm. in some of these smaller communities, uh, they may not actually even have a, a general f- practitioner in that community at all. Uh, this seems to be part of the solution to that, I would think.
4: Mm-hmm. It's an interesting um, conversation to have, and what we're trying to look at is how can we work with our current healthcare system? How can we work with our current doctors and healthcare providers to make healthcare more efficient, to deliver care to more people using technology within the system we already have? Um, so it it opens up multiple different possibilities, and it's not. Doing the same thing over and over again.
0: We mentioned government a couple of minutes ago, Doctor. They they have a role to play here. Obviously, they they are the ones that cut the checks for this stuff. Uh, but at the same time, they've got to be on side with how the system is going to be delivered. Have, has there been a discussion, at least, a, a initial discussions with government about revamping? It's it's not really an overhaul of the healthcare system. I would think more it's a, it's a it's a modernization and a, I guess the continued evolution of the healthcare system.
4: It is a continued evolution. I mean, we're, um, we've are we got a Canadian medical system that was designed decades ago that is continuing to deliver the same type of health care uh, even 20, 30 years ago. But our health problems have evolved. Technology has evolved. So the discussions are continuing, and they're happening at provincial levels. They're happening at that national level. And part of the effort we're trying to focus on is getting a coordinated coordinated effort between all levels of government, you know, trying to have governments work together to deliver health care for Canadians. Because health is in a provincial jurisdiction, it's not a federal. Health is all of our concern.
0: And and with that in mind, I would think that the possibilities here are are limitless about the number of things that we can do. I know that that, uh, the association, the Canadian Medical Association, has been very adamant about moving uh, a lot more towards uh, preventive medicine as opposed to reactive Mm -hmm. medicine. Uh, Let's get healthier right from the get-go, which is going to relieve some of the pressure on the system, relieve some of the pressure on hospitals, reduce wait times, a number of issues like that. Uh, but the amount of information that's available, I guess, if we start moving towards online or virtual uh, sessions with doctors, is is I think probably going to be part of that solution.
4: It's part of it. I, you know, for example, I see more and more Canadians using. Um, you know, we talked about Fitbits, iWatches, and apps. So they want to be part of the healthcare process. A lot of it starts with monitoring your health, being aware of how you are looking after yourself. So that's the preventative part. You know, we also need to be more uh, proactive in health. And I think using the technology to allow Canadians to be more actively involved in their health care uh, empowers them. It, it enables them to feel like they are part of the healthcare team, which they should be.
0: It's it's an interesting concept, and and it's going to be fascinating. As I mentioned, this conference is going to be taking place in Toronto. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see just how quickly uh, the uh, game plan, I guess, can be established uh, to try to do this. Uh, the the study that came out, I think, is is has got to embolden the association. I would think, Doctor, to know that hey, you know what, the public's ready for this at this time. It certainly sounds like your membership is ready for it.
4: Doctors are ready for it, and it's good to know. The study shows Canadians are also ready for it. And that's where I think if we can partner together you know, equally to say our healthcare system needs to be modernized. It needs to be uh, updated. Um, we can work together to make the healthcare system better.
0: Doctor, good luck with this. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that this is the beginning of, of that evolution that you were just talking about. Uh, and it's uh, one of those classic situations, I guess, that uh, as you move forward on this, everybody wins.
4: I hope so. You know, if we do nothing, Canada will only fall further behind in terms of using technology in our healthcare system. So having this conversation is a start, but we want to move it beyond conversation to some real
0: action. Doctor, thanks again for the time today. Great talking with you.
4: Thanks for having me on.
0: Take care. That's uh, Dr. Gigi Osler, who is the president